0: You're listening to TIP.
1: On today's show, I sit down with Justin Eaton to talk about his journey into real estate investing and how he looks at it through the lens of a home inspector. Justin is a successful real estate investor himself, having completed over 14 flips, as well as a wholesale, burr, house hack, and live and flip deals. He is also the founder of South Jersey Real Estate Investor Group and owner of Dwell Safe Inspections and Engineering. Let's dive right into this week's episode.
0: You're listening to Real Estate Investing by The Investor's Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to today's show. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Justin Eaton. Welcome to the show, Justin. Hey, Rob, thanks for having me, man. For the audience who isn't familiar with you, tell them a bit about your background, your story, how you got to where you are today.
0: I graduated college in 2012 with a civil engineering degree, and I kind of fell into a job doing home inspections and structural engineering. I wasn't really into the job too much at first. I was like, hey, I just went to college, I got an engineering degree, and I'm working for this small company doing mostly home inspections. And I wasn't really into it at first, and I was kind of the feelers out for other jobs ended up just sticking it out. I got better at the home inspection stuff, and eventually I got my home inspector's license. And then in 2015, I partnered up with the owner of that company, and then we did our first flip property. And we did seven flips together, and then we kind of went our separate ways from the investment standpoint, but I was still working for him. And then in 2018, me and him were, he's a little bit older, so he was thinking about retiring. So me and him were talking about I was going to buy the business from him, Ultimately, it didn't end up working out. So, I started my own business in January of 2019 for the home inspections and structural engineering and uh, been investing in real estate since 2015, kind of
1: on the side. So, what does your real estate portfolio look like? What have you done for deals? How many units do you own?
0: Yeah, so I've done between 2014 and up to now, I've done 15 flips, seven were with that original partner, the balance were solo. Done one wholesale deal. I have one single family rental now that I did the burn method on, and I'm actually in the process of doing another burn method now. I'm on my second live in flip or second live in investment property. So the first one was like a live in flip slash house hack where I bought a property, renovated it, moved into it, had somebody rent one of the bedrooms. In 2017, I sold that property and bought a duplex, up and down duplex. I moved into the first floor, like an upstairs tenant, and it also has a three car detached garage that I rent out separate. So it covers like 65% of my living expenses between principal insurance, taxes. That's kind of where I'm at right now. And I'm kind of transitioning into apartment syndication.
1: So based on that timeline, it sounded like you started with flips before you got into your house hack.
0: So that first one I bought to live in, that was before I knew anything about real estate investing at all. I kind of bought it as I needed somewhere to live. My parents were splitting up, they were selling the house. So my boss came across this property he was gonna buy it as an investment and said, "Hey, like I know you don't. You're looking to move somewhere. This property's up for sale. If you want it, like if you can make it work, do it." So, like a house, it was it needed rehab. But that was before I really knew anything about real estate investing. And then maybe a year, year and a half later is when I started learning about real estate investing. That was when we did our first flip.
1: How'd you know you were ready to do a flip, and why'd you choose flips over going into a rental?
0: Yeah, so I saw people who were doing flips and. From like an outsider standpoint, it was like, hey, they looks like they're making really good money. They're making 20, 40, 50,000 dollars at a time doing flips, which is obviously attractive to a, a 23-year-old. So that interested me. And yeah, that's kind of what it was, was the "I can supplement my full-time job income with a flip or two a year. It's a pretty significant increase in active income.
1: So how was actually flipping those properties different than what you expected from the outside view?
0: It was a lot harder and the first one especially probably made all the mistakes in the book tried to do everything myself so like to try and you know you think you're gonna save money on paint by doing it myself save money on the carpentry but putting all the trim in save money on demo but like in reality it took three times as long as it should have it was like a two-month renovation and up taking six months so you actually you probably balance it the money that you save you've spent on time plus holding costs if you have those so after we did that first one, we figured out like, hey, just focus your time on working. We'll hire subs for all this stuff. Then it kind of was a smoother transition from there. I was more of like a GC, just
1: kind of overseeing the subs from then on out. So how did the rest of your deals go? Would you say most of them were successful? Did you have any others that were difficult? Did you have any failures? We didn't lose on any of the deals. There was one or two flips, probably
0: really just one that was like a break-even flip where we went over on the renovations. Otherwise, I would say they've all been pretty successful.
1: On those break-even ones, why'd you go over on the rehab? Did something happen during the renovation that you didn't expect or was the rehab budget just not set appropriately?
0: I had a hard money loan on the property. It took longer to sell. So it ended up being like three or four months worth of holding costs that wasn't accounted for. And then the main budget issue was the plumbing issue. The house, we planned on, it was electric, everything. We planned on putting having gas been in and converting everything to gas, that was more expensive than anticipated. So between that and the holding costs, it was probably like, there was other factors there too, but those were the two things that caused us to get closer to breaking human.
1: What were you doing to be able to estimate rehab costs that you could get accurate budgets? So
0: with the home inspection background, you kind of knew everything that had to be done. So it was easy to kind of put a scope together after walking through a house, and then I would send that scope to the subs. Sometimes if we had access to the property, I could send them out there before we bought it. I feel like if it was vacant and it was on a lockbox, we would try to get guys out there before so that we had a more accurate budget. We would over budget a little bit too, give us some wiggle room there if we were to go over on some things. And uh, we would always put like a five to 10% contingency on the renovation budget, depending on
1: the scope of the project. How are you finding all these deals?
0: So again, the home inspection business, all your home inspection leads come from referrals. So, we would get off market deals or pocket listings from some of the realtors we knew through the home inspections. Some of them were just MLS deals, and then some of them were from wholesalers. And then two of them were from an auction website.
1: So, you were able to find some flip properties off the MLS and still make a profit?
0: Yeah, this was a couple of years back then. So, like, this was before it was like the coolest thing out. So, in like 2014 and 15, you could still find like good deals on the MLS. Maybe not home runs, but a lot better than what you can find these days.
1: Yeah. Today, it's a lot more competitive than it was back then. So you mentioned your home inspection background has helped a lot with estimating the rehab costs. How about the structural engineering side? We were talking that it helps with the foundation. So does that allow you to buy properties that might have structural issues or foundation issues because you can analyze that better than someone else? Because a lot of times those properties could sell at a big discount or a lot of investors just avoid them because that's usually a huge ticket item. And or they don't understand it. So, have you found that to be like a competitive advantage for you that you can go in there and understand the structural issue there and find really good deals that way?
0: Yeah. So, if we find that a property is like priced significantly lower than what it should be because of structural issues, then yeah, then we have like a better feeling of what needs to be done and a good price on that. But a lot of times it almost works against us because we'll be out looking at properties and we'll see foundation issues and structural issues that other investors won't see. So I don't know, it's like a catch-22 because we see it. So we put an offer in that's lower than what other offers are coming in at because we know that there's a $15,000 foundation issue where other investors might not see it. So it ends up hurting them in the long run because if it ends up coming up, they're going to have to budget to fix it. But I feel like I lose deals sometimes because my offer prices are lower sometimes than what other people are offering because I know of these other conditions. Does that make sense? challenging. Sometimes it's like, I feel like I should put an offer in and then put some type of inspection report together. But being the home inspector, it's kind of conflict of interest too.
1: That's a really good point that I didn't even think of. I just assumed that you would be able to take advantage of the opportunities and say, this has foundation issues. Everybody knows this, but because I know it better, I can make a good deal out of this. Whereas what you're saying is that there's some properties that there's a foundation issue, but people don't know about it. And so therefore you can't be competitive with your offer because you're taking that into consideration with your budget, whereas the other people aren't.
0: Exactly. But it, it could come back to hurt them in the long run. If it comes up when they go to sell it, the home inspection might, you know, may or may not find it then. So it's it's a gamble on their part,
1: you know? Yeah, absolutely. When a new investor is buying a property, what are some of the big red flags they need to look for from a home inspection or even structural standpoint? If they're an investor is buying their first rental property or a burr or a flip, what are the types of things they need to look for?
0: I would always suggest having a home inspection done just because the home inspector is going to go in the attics, in the crawl spaces. He's going to walk the roof, he's going to run the heat, run the plumbing. As an investor, if you're just pre contract and pre offer, if you're just kind of walking it, look for like water in the crawl space, water in the basement. At least stick your head up in the attic, see if it smells musty or moldy. Walk the perimeter. I don't think most people would be able to look for termites like in the basement and crawl spaces. I would say the biggest things that you could look for as an investor without getting into the nitty gritty would be like moisture problems because that's going to lead to mold issues. Waterproofing is expensive. A lot of times, water intrusions in basements lead to structural issues and termites. So the more moisture issues you have, more chance you have of bigger issues.
1: So what are some issues with properties? So say somebody wants to buy a flip, what's something they can look for that people often think is like a big thing and so it kind of turns off people? But in reality, it's not necessarily that big of a deal and if somebody knows to look for that, they can then buy those flips at a discount. So, what is something like that that's often overblown, but could actually lead to opportunity for people that know what they're looking for?
0: Yeah, I think foundation issues are sometimes overblown. People get scared away by cracking in foundations. Depending on the extent of the damage, it could be fairly cheap, relatively speaking. So, like an investor might think, "Oh, this is going to cost me twenty grand to fix this foundation," where really it might only be like five. That's probably the biggest one would be the foundation issues. It's not terribly expensive to fix if it's fixable. And so, where are you buying all of your flips these days? I haven't done many flips lately. I did two in 2018. They were both pocket listings off market from realtors.
1: We're in New Jersey recording today. Is that where you're buying all your properties? Yeah, they're all in South Jersey. You said you're going into the syndication space. Talk to us a little bit about your plan there and how you plan on raising capital.
0: Yeah. So I have a pretty good network of friends and people I've met through home inspections and through real estate investing transactions where I kind of grew like a network of like people who might have some extra money to invest. So right now I'm, I'm in the process of putting together soft commitments from investors to raise capital and then bring on possibly bring on other members of the GP side general partnership who also could bring on limited partners too. Right now, I'm trying to figure out how much capital I can raise by myself. And then once I know how much capital I can raise from private investors, I'll be able to target specific properties, maybe a 20 to 30 unit, maybe a 40 to 60 unit, somewhere in there. Planning on doing one or two local like that first, and then target out-of-state markets.
1: How are you approaching these investors when you're reaching out to them saying, hey, I'm doing a syndication? What are you saying to them when you're asking for them to invest?
0: Yeah. So basically, all the people that I'm asking know me and know what I've been doing in real estate investing and know I have a home inspection business. And that's one good thing about posting on Facebook and Instagram, people are seeing what you're doing. So then like they're comfortable with what you're doing and they're comfortable in you and they know that you know what you're doing in that space. So I basically explained to them, this is what my real estate investing experience is. Most of them would already know. But I would basically tell them I'm in the transition now from one to four unit investing into apartment syndication, and I'm looking to raise private capital to use that to invest in larger properties.
1: How did you know that you were ready for a syndication, right? I mean, you've done a lot of flips, which is obviously great, but you've only done two rentals and a couple house hacks. How did you know you're ready to go to a large syndication, not as a passive LP, but as an active GP? It doesn't translate all the way through.
0: Like you're gonna read books and learn, but you're not gonna like really learn until you do it. But I think I've read enough about it and done enough research and networked with enough people to at least start the process. For the first one or two or three, I plan on bringing on GPs to assist me in the process and kind of guide me through it for the first time. Yeah, I'm not gonna like just run straight through by myself, and I'm not gonna be the only GP on this one. I'm gonna bring in. Someone with experience that'll make me feel more comfortable. That'll make my limited partners feel more comfortable. I feel like personally I have enough knowledge in real estate investing. I feel like I know enough about how apartment properties are valued and how they work. You know NOI, cap rate, and all that. I feel like I have enough knowledge to make that next step. And if I partner with the right people on the GP side, I can make the right moves. How are you finding those co-GPs to join your deal? Just local network groups. Matt Faircloth here uh, to this office, You know he lives obviously near here, which is kind of where I'm from. So I met him through some local events. He's kind of the first one I reached out to, to co-GP with, and uh, he said he was all for it. I've talked to some other people about coming on GP side that don't really have real estate investing experience, but have people that they're friends in their network that can bring on capital. So those are the kind of the two avenues I'm pursuing
1: from the GP partnership. Yeah. You need someone that has the real estate experience, but also you want somebody that can bring in the capital and help you with that side of things. Exactly. So for your first syndication, are you looking for 100, 200 unit property? Or are you looking for more like a 50 unit start, maybe mid-size or a smaller syndication? I was planning on targeting like a 30 to 60 unit in South Jersey. And are there a lot of properties in that area of that size?
0: Yeah, there's more than you would think. So, like, if you're not looking for those properties, you don't necessarily see them. In the last like two years, once I actually started like looking around at the types of properties I'm driving by on a daily basis, there's a lot more than you would think. So, yeah, I think there's definitely deals to be had. You're gonna have to probably find them, hook up with the owner off market. You're not gonna find them on the MLS or LoopNet or wherever. To get the right deal, you're gonna have to be off market.
1: Yeah, that was gonna be my next question. How are you finding these deals? Because you're not gonna see a big. For sale sign in front of a 60 unit apartment building, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. I drive for dollars, so Bigger Pockets talks about that a lot. So I'll write down the uh, address of an apartment complex. I'll go back and look up the tax records, see who owns it, and then I'll either mail them a letter or try and reach out to them via phone call,
1: try and get a hold of them somehow directly. So when you're competing in a market, obviously you mentioned Matt Faircloth, who's here at PodMax with us today. And he's going to co GP a deal with you, so he's not necessarily competition. But there's obviously other competitors in the market. How are you combating against other competitors and making sure that you win these off market deals?
0: I think it's a matter of putting in the time and effort to get in contact with the owners and putting different marketing schemes together and maybe some direct mail marketing to try and contact these owners before other investors. Because I know there's I'm not the only one doing this, probably. So yeah, it would be try and get to these owners. Quicker than other investors might, and show them off the bat that you know I have a track record, and we're going to close the deal. I'm not just out here pulling strings, you know. Are you using any creative marketing strategies? No, not at this time. Not other than you know mailing direct mail, just
1: regular direct mail, nothing fancy.
0: Yeah, I usually just I have like a pre-made letter on my computer. I'll type in address and like names and stuff specific to those properties. I'll just seal an envelope and mail it to their house.
1: And you mentioned that you were studying reading books, resources, things like that to get prepared. Do you feel like you're ready for a syndication? What were some of those resources that you're using to get prepared for the syndication?
0: There's a couple books that stand out. So like when I first started flipping, that's all I wanted to do. I thought that was the best like real estate investing avenue was flipping because you could make chunks and chunks of money, but then I realized it was transactional. And then I read the book on rental property investing by Brandon Turner, and that completely changed like my mindset from, I want to just flip to I want to just buy rentals. So I saw that that was like, the true like wealth generator in real estate investing was like long-term buy and holds plus the cash flow that they can provide. And then I read a couple of apartment syndication books, Crushing It by Brian Murray. And then I read uh, Multifamily Million by David Lindahl. And that was the one that really flipped the switch for like, value-add multifamily, how they're valued, what to look for, most recently, I read Joe Farrell's book, the apartment syndication book, and that's kind of like a step-by-step process. So that kind of outlines everything that you would need to do from start to finish to find a deal to close a deal. So,
1: What has been the most surprising or most important thing you've learned throughout studying for the syndication process?
0: I would say the most surprising thing is how much value you can add to a property by raising rents a little bit on each unit because of how the NOI would coordinate with the cap rate, which gives you your value of the property.
1: For someone listening to the show today who hasn't heard of that dynamic that you're mentioning, of course, when you raise the net operating income, a commercial property is valued based on a multiple of the net operating income. Talk to us a bit about why that is and how that increases the value of an apartment building so much more than other properties.
0: Because of the multiple units all under one roof. So if you have a hundred unit property, and you increase the rent by ten to twenty dollars per property, you're essentially increasing the value up to one hundred fifty to two hundred fifty thousand dollars based on the cap rate in that market. So the value add is, you know, it's a lot easier to raise the rent ten to twenty dollars than it would be like if you're doing a single family or a two to four unit property. You're looking for two to three hundred per door cash flow. So like the rent for something like that might be twelve hundred to fifteen hundred a $10 or $20 increase on that rent really isn't going to change the
1: bottom line or the value of that property compared to a bigger property. Anything four units or less is valued on comps. So it doesn't matter really what the income is on the property. Hypothetically, it can make a million dollars. It doesn't matter. It's based on comps, right? Whereas a property that's five units or more at the hundred level scale, it's true as it is with five units, it's based on a multiple of the cap rate. So like you said, if you're able to increase rents and that drops right to the bottom line, the net operating income is increased, the value of the property is increased. And I think that's why five units and up is such a valuable asset class, if you will, to get into, which is considered commercial properties often by banks. And that's why it's so powerful is because you can increase the value of the properties so fast just by simply raising rents.
0: Yeah, it's an exponential growth. It's an exponential Value add. So, especially like if you can increase the rents a little bit, reduce the expenses creatively, especially if you find a property that's not efficiently managed and maintained. If you had like a mom and pop owner who kind of was just doing everything themselves and like they might be a little high on expenses, if you can bring those expenses down, increase the rents a little bit,
1: that's when you can generate real wealth exponentially through multifamily. Yeah. When you start looking at reducing the expenses by say $50 a month per unit, and then you increase the rent, say 100 bucks a unit. Now you're looking at $150 a unit on a 100 unit property. That's some real, real money that you're adding to that value of the property very quickly with just by managing the asset appropriately and better than mom and pop investor was doing, like you said. So let's go back to flipping. What were some of the biggest lessons you learned?
0: So again, on that first one, I tried to do everything myself to save money on the renovation, but it ended up being a longer renovation. So if you have high holding costs on that property, it's going to eat into your profit. I would say having quality contractors that you can trust might be more valuable than the cheapest guy you can find. You know, you hire the cheapest guys, stuff's not going to be right. Sometimes you may end up having to go back and redo things where you might have paid a little bit more, but only had to do it once and not had to babysit your contractors those are the two main things from a renovation side. And uh, I think you got to get creative when you're finding deals, especially these days
1: to find deals where there's enough margin in the project to make a profit. For someone listening to the show today who hasn't done a flip yet, and they may not have heard of holding cost, what is a holding cost? And why is that so important when you're looking at flips?
0: So depending on your financing, obviously if you buy it, so your holding cost is basically utilities, taxes, insurance, and financing. They're like the bulk of your holding costs. In New Jersey specifically, the taxes are pretty high. So it could be 500 to $1,200 a month, depending on the location. And then your financing factors in, obviously, if you pay cash, you're not paying a mortgage on that property or a construction loan or hard money. Hard money, you're going to be paying a pretty penny on financing. So that might be eight to $1,200, sometimes more, $1,500 a month, just in interest-only payments. So the primary factors there would be for the holding costs would be. The if you have debt on it, you're going to have a fine, a debt cost, and then your taxes are the two, that's going to be the majority of your holding costs. So every month you hold that property, or you can even break it down to per day, every extra day you hold that property might be 50
1: or 60 bucks, 100 bucks in holding costs alone. Yeah. Just because you're flipping that property doesn't mean the taxes aren't still accruing every day. You know, You're still going to get that monthly or quarterly tax bill from the city that you're going to have to pay. And those are real costs that you need to take into consideration when you're doing a flip. And the same goes for the insurance and any other holding costs you might have, like you said, the lender fees. Now, going back to the general contractor, what makes for a good contractor? Obviously, that's very important if you're flipping, and it can even be important if you're doing rentals, if, especially if you're doing the birth strategy like you are. What makes for a good general contractor?
0: Somebody you can trust. That's number one, because if you can't trust them, you know that you're going to have that in the back of your mind constantly. Like, oh, is this getting done? Is that getting done? Is he going to be there today? Is he doing it right? You should try and find a contractor that works with investors or has investor experience themselves because you don't want them going and except for electrical, you don't want them budgeting for all these super expensive lights when it's like you really just need base quality lights in certain situations. Same thing for like plumbing and HVAC. You don't want them putting the $20,000 HVAC system in when like a $5,000 system would be fine for something like this. But well, yeah, I think the biggest thing would be trust the contractor coming up with a budget and scope of work that they stick to. This way, you're not, you know, he's not going to be hitting you with work orders and all this crazy stuff that's going to blow the budget or make it longer for the t- project.
1: If it's your first time working with a contractor, how do you know that you can trust them or how can you find out if you can trust them?
0: I would say try and get referrals from other investors in that market, because they're going to have some sort of track record through people that you know who are doing the same
1: thing that you're going to be looking to do. And how do you find a good contractor, especially today? Because, I mean, you just said referrals, but a lot of contractors are so busy, they don't have time, right? So how do you find someone that is available, but it's also good? And if you're doing a flip, time is of the essence. You need that contractor in there ASAP, and they might have a Bunch of different projects going on. So, how are you able to find somebody that's not only trustworthy and can do all the things that you just mentioned, they're investor friendly, things like that, but they also are available at the time that you need them?
0: Yeah, and they may not be. You may have to wait a couple weeks or a month to start a project if you want to go with that contractor, knowing that it'll be done right when it gets started. Or, you know, if you want to try and take the risk of finding somebody new that you're not totally sure about to save like a month's worth of time, it could be worth it and it could be a good contractor. Well, I would say other ways to find those types of contractors would be through like network groups, real estate network groups, business groups. You could go on Angie's list or uh, Home advisor. There's like some good quality contractors on there that have reviews and like a track record, so to speak, online. But that's the other difficult part of the renovations is, is finding a good contractor who can especially right now, there's so much construction going on, a lot of these contractors are backed up a couple of weeks or months, you know, on their timeline for starting. So it's tough.
1: Yeah. I think that's probably the hardest part, right? If they're that good, they're going to be booked, right? That's just the way it is. It's a competitive market right now. There's a lot of deals going on. There's a lot of money in the market. If they're good, they're going to be booked out probably for a few weeks. Have you ever delayed a flip? Have you bought a flip knowing and then you found out you couldn't have your contractor for a few weeks and you decided to just eat those holding costs for a few weeks because you really wanted to get that specific contractor in there?
0: Yes. So the way I've done most of mine, like I basically GC the job myself. So I'll have subs go in there. So if it's a contract, like i always use the same guy for like kitchen cabinets and tile. Sometimes if I get to the point where I'm ready for kitchen cabinets and tile and he's like a week or two or three out, I will wait because it's worth it for me to have him in there. I know it's going to be done right. Tile and cabinetry are going to look good. But usually there's like things in between like electrical plumbing, HVAC. I haven't had major delay issues with those guys. Usually I can get them in on a timely manner. Usually it's the skilled carpentry and tile guys. It's a little more booked. If you're using a general contractor, then kind of throws a wrench into that whole situation. But for me, it's easier if I have guys that I'm hiring individually, because if one of them can't get in right away, at least I can get the other ones in
1: there to get started and get it going. Yeah, as the GC, you could send in the plumber, right? And then if the next guy's the electrical and he's not available for a couple of weeks, maybe you send in some guy to do some carpentry or something else. You could kind of finagle that because you're the GC rather than bringing in the entire GC team who's going to just hire out the subs. Now, how about your draw schedule? How do you manage that? What are your tips or hacks that you use to successfully manage your draw schedule so that you're not just giving them the full lump sum money? Oh, you mean from a
0: construction standpoint to the contractors? Usually, I'll do, depending on the scope, they'll do like a materials down payment and then like partial labor, depending on the scope of work. And then sometimes I'll set it up to where they'll put a materials lists together, and then they'll do like an order through Home Depot or somewhere, and I'll call and pay for it. I'm not giving them the money and those materials will be paid for, and then I'll give them a labor deposit. Usually like a third or one half labor deposit to get them in there and get started.
1: And have mentors played a big role in your real estate journey so far?
0: A lot of my flip experience. So I did have like a real estate investing mentor for the flip space in the beginning. And I kind of like followed along his path, but not like directly with him. I kind of was just like watching from the side more so. There's was a lot of learning on the fly with me, and I learned pretty quick. And once I started learning about real estate investing, I started
1: reading more books. That definitely helped me grow quicker and learn better that way too. What books and resources helped you in the flipping space? We talked about some in the syndication space. What helped you in the flipping space? Estimating Rehab Costs. That one, and I think maybe
0: just more online research on the flip space through bigger pockets forums and home advisor and stuff. But I think a lot of the knowledge came from existing home inspection, building knowledge in addition to flip experience after the first few.
1: Throughout everything you've done, studied, what has been the biggest thing you've learned and what is the biggest piece of advice that you'd give to someone listening to the show today?
0: Try not to think about it too much. Like If you're going to get started in real estate or any business, a lot of times you can get analysis by paralysis. You don't ever start. You're just constantly running numbers on deals and you know, you're going to find something that's going to be close, but then you're like, oh, well, but the numbers aren't great. And it's like, eventually you just got to pull trigger on something and do at least one deal, get your foot in the door and get some experience. That'll give you the confidence and you're going to learn from it going forward. You can't sit around and wait. You got to get in the game eventually, even if you just break even on one or two in the beginning.
1: Now that you've done house hacks, flips, and you've done a couple of rentals, what do you think the best way is for a new investor to get started? Where would you recommend somebody brand new to real estate starts? Should it be a flip, a house hack, a rental?
0: Depends on what they want to do. I would say a house hack is the holy grail of getting your feet wet in real estate investing because you can buy something that needs work and then you know, you're going to get some construction or flip experience that way. And then if you want to be a landlord or if you want to get rental properties, you're going to be like an on-site landlord, essentially, if you're living in that property, renting the other parts of it out. And the financing terms are also attractive for a living property, investment property, so you can get into the deal for cheaper most times. Yeah, so I would say like a fixer-upper two to four unit that you plan on living in would be the best way to start because like I said, you're, you're going to be able to get into it for fairly cheap and then you're going to get experience fixing it up and then landlording at the same time.
1: So a combination of a house hack and a live-in flip? Yeah. My first property was a house hack. And then my second property, which I live in now, was a live-in flip. And I've done rentals since then, but my second property, like you said, was a live-in flip. I think those are both really good strategies. Justin, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Where can the audience go to connect with you and just learn more about all the things you got going on?
0: Yeah. So my home inspection, structural engineering business is uh, DwellSafe Inspections and Engineering. You can go to dwellsafenj.com to learn more about that business. I have an Instagram. It's Eaton underscore homes. That's like mostly my flip stuff. And like some of my rental properties and pictures are on there. And I also host South Jersey Real Estate Investor Group, which is a local networking group in South Jersey. We usually meet up like once a month to uh, network there. And it's been good. I've seen a lot of deals get done there partnerships, friendships, businesses formed there. So that's been really beneficial.
1: I'll be sure to put links to all those different resources in the show notes. You guys can go check that out. And as always, I'll put a bunch of books in the show notes that relate to the topics that we've talked about so that you guys can go read up more if there's specific topics you want to learn about. Justin, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, man. Thank you. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week.
0: Thank you for listening to TIP.